Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, Ukraine pressures Russia's flanks around Bakhmut. The Russian Air Force suffers its worst week since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And Francis Durnley ventures to Liverpool to report on the Ukrainian experience at Eurovision. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 15th of May, one year and 80 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, foreign reporter Genevieve Holt-Allen, and, from Eurovision, our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure has. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It has been a very busy weekend in Ukraine, as we suggested, predicted on Friday. Well, predicted is a bit strong. I don't think you need to be class fits to have worked that one out. Let's start off. So Ukraine's military has said it has captured 10 Russian positions near Bakhmut. Right. Let's get rid of this one straight off the bat. That could be a headquarters, could be a trench, could be an abandoned trench. So without wider context or detail, that's pretty useless information. So spend no more time on that. However, British MOD over the weekend said that Russia's 72nd Motor Rifle Brigade had withdrawn, quote, in bad order from Russia's southern flank. This is the, well, collapse might be too strong a word, but certainly the, the flanks are under extreme pressure. Russian flanks around Bakhmut under extreme pressure. Withdrawing in bad order is British military understatement for saying it's all gone to rats. But what do we know? So the, frank, the flanks seem to be collapsing around Bakhmut or as I say if not collapsing that that's far too strong possibly under extreme pressure the flanks seem to be we think are mainly thought to be regular Russian forces recently mobilized forces poorly poorly trained poorly led poorly equipped there are suggestions that even those regulars are now being bolstered by convicts the same as we saw with Wagner unconfirmed reports there but they're not thought to be much cop at all Wagner seem to be holding firm in the centre of the city, at Bakhmut, but they're now at risk of envelopment. So the question is then, well, why not, why not cede the city centre to prevent that encirclement? And I think the answer there is that these are different units. You've got Wagner against the regular Russian military, against the, um, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic militia, these kind of characters. So they've got different missions, there's different units, they've got a lack of coordination, there's no respect between the units, and there's, of course, the massive loss of political prestige if Wagner retreats, especially given how many times Yevgeny Prigozhin has declared victory. But let's have a look at Bakhmut. So, you know, for those unfamiliar, imagine a clock face with Bakhmut right in the centre. For quite a few weeks now, Ukraine have been clinging on to the number nine on the clock, on the clock face. This is about two k's from the centre of, of Bakhmut. There are two resupply routes in and out of the city from that side that have been keeping 
uh, at various times, one or both closed, but keeping Ukraine hanging on. They've both been under extreme pressure for weeks now. First, the Kromove Road, that's the, the 506. You'll see it on the Google Maps, the 506. This is the sort of northern route. It wiggles, it wobbles around a bit, but it basically goes through the number nine on our, on our imaginary clock face. The second route is a much bigger road. That's a 504. That heads out through the number eight. Now, Ukraine has cleared in these latest counteroffensives, not the big counteroffensive, but you know, in these latest, in these attacks over the weekend, we think... Ukraine has cleared the Kromove Road, that's the 506, the one going out through the 9. That supply route heads out to Chasov Yar, about 5Ks to the west. That's where Roland Oliphant and Heathcliff O'Malley, our colleagues, were reporting from last week. But then in the south, we believe Russian forces have been pushed further away from the town of Ivanivska. This straddles the main road, that 504, the one going out through the number 8 on the clock face, heads sort of west-southwest-ish, from Bakhmut, it's about a K outside the city. So they've been pushed out of that town. The southwest of that town is in a heavily forested area, which is a, a great position from which the, which the Russians have been firing on and, if not controlling, then dominating the, the main supply route, that 504. But that position is under extreme pressure by Ukrainian forces pushing south through the town of Ivanivska. And I've just been, just before we came on today, I've just been checking the latest. There are reports that that little lodgement, although that that seemed to be secure, it was a good position, well def- easily defended and well defended, but the supply from the town of Ivanivska was being cut off and they've either been destroyed or pulled out. Unconfirmed, but it looks as if that has gone. In which case, that is basically the, like I say, on our clock face, the nine through to the eight, kind of half past seven-ish, that's where Ukraine are pushing and having some success. Now, you know, as I say, Wagner's still in the middle of the city, but if those movements are confirmed, then the ground there would lend itself to a move east along that from the southern axis around um, south of Ivanivska, a, a push east from which they could then strike north and cut off Wagner, and similarly on the north side of the city. So, you know, it's still a huge, great lot of pushing and shoving going on there. But it does seem as if those flanks that seem to come from the regular Russian forces with lower morale, not so well trained, etc., etc., they seem to be seeding ground, which would then cause some right old headaches for Wagner in the middle. I've got loads more quick updates, but uh, David, do you want to come back on any of that? Let's do them later, I think. I'd quite like to bring in Natalia Vasilyeva, a Russia correspondent, uh, who's been actually covering the Turkish election. So let's go to Natalia. What can you tell us about the Turkish re- election? And um, off the bat, did the war in Ukraine play a huge part in it or not? Hi, everyone. A pivotal election in Turkey. Everyone says that it's um, easily the most important historic election in at least two decades. Turned out to be quite a nail-biter. We still don't know who won. More, almost 24 hours since the polls closed, we still don't have the official results. There's likely to be a runoff. Speaking about the war, it's not an issue here at all, to be completely honest. What could be an issue is Turkey's um, support for Ukraine or Turkey's ties with Russia. I'm not sure if you guys covered it or not on Friday, but Turkey's main opposition leader came out on Friday, essentially accusing Russia of trying to meddle in the elections. He had quite a direct statement on Twitter addressing Russian hackers, telling them to, quote, get their hands off his country or there would be something threatening friendship between Russia and uh, Turkey. I mean, Turkey has, has a, had quite a special place in, um, in the war in Ukraine since um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has explicitly supported Vladimir Zelensky. He has visited Kiev. He visited Kiev before the war, I have to say. He wasn't there during the war. He has offered all kind of support for Ukraine, but not lethal aid, no weapons. At the same time, he's been able to maintain good relations with Putin. Turkey has been serving as an important trade hub. A lot of so-called gray imports have been coming through Turkey. And Turkey is basically one of the reasons why supermarket shelves in Russia are still full. Because all of the sanctioned goods, goods that would be banned for, for sale in Europe, have been coming through Turkey. Now, uh, the main opposition candidate here has been quite coy about relations with Russia, obviously understanding what a thorny issue it is right now. It wouldn't be an issue for his voters, but it definitely would be an issue for Russia itself. 
um, Turkey get a lot of its energy from Russia in terms of natural gas, in terms of oil supplies. Kemal Kirishtilol of the main opposition candidate has actually been criticized for having a very vague policy, a very, a very vague foreign policy. The very few interviews with foreign media that he has given did very little to shed any light on his foreign policy. What he did make clear is that he would like to strengthen Turkish ties with NATO. Turkey is a NATO country. And he indicated that Turkey might join European sanctions because right now Turkey hasn't joined any sanctions against Russia. So that is something that would give a pause, that would give a cause for concern in Moscow. At the same time, this morning, the Kremlin spokesman said that they were waiting for the results, for the election results in Turkey, and they would support whoever candidate wins. Thanks, Natalia. You said we still don't know who's won. Do, you, do we have a sense of when we might find out? So how long is this going to go on for? Sure. Well, we have preliminary results, as they call them, which means 99% of the ballots counted. They are still counting foreign votes, votes cast at consulates and embassies abroad. What is quite unusual is that neither Erdogan nor the main opposition candidate have come and accepted those results. Erdogan currently leads um, with 5% points, just short of the 50% threshold, meaning that there would be a runoff. It's quite likely that we will have some kind of a final result tomorrow morning. Thanks, Natalia. Just final question from me. You mentioned that the war in Ukraine really hasn't played on voters' minds at all in the Turkish elections. We've covered a number of elections here over the past year and a bit across all sorts of different European countries in which often the war in Ukraine is is an issue. It might, might not be the main issue, but it's certainly an issue. Why do you think it's not really on Turkish voters' minds at all? Well, first off, because if you speak about Europe, uh, Europe is paying for the war in, U- in Ukraine. Obviously, uh, it's it paying directly and then in, in terms of, you know, not buying your, your Russian cheap Russian gas. And it's also paying, sorry, paying indirectly as in not buying Russian gas and paying directly by supplying weapons to Ukraine. None of those two issues are present in Turkey. Turkey still buys Russian gas and oil. So its energy security is no way compromised by the war. Turkey is not having to spend any of its budgets on supplying weapons for Ukraine. And Turkey has actually been making money from from both sides of this war. It has been mon- making money on Russians, on hundreds of thousands of Russians who left the country and who are settling in here in Turkey. And it's been making money on, uh, on all those imports. So Turkey is not losing from the war. Turkey, if there are any beneficiaries of the war, it would be Turkey, however awful that might sound. Thank you very much, Natalia. That was absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure we'll come back to the Turkish election in the next few days. Thank you, Natalia. And best of luck with your uh, interviews later this afternoon. Thank you. Can we go to uh, Genevieve Hall-Allen, our foreign reporter? Um, it's been a big day on the diplomatic arena. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky is in the UK meeting Rishi Sunak, the prime minister. Genevieve, this comes at the end of a uh, extensive European trip for Mr. Zelensky. Can you tell us about it? Hi, David. Yes, as you say, uh, a pretty significant day in terms of diplomacy and diplomatic relations between the UK and Ukraine. I'll start with Uh, what's been happening in in the UK between Zelensky and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, if I may. So, yes, as you say, Mr Zelensky has arrived in the UK, actually not to London, but he's arrived in Buckinghamshire by helicopter this morning to meet Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at Chequers, the country residence, for for what Mr Zelensky described as substantive negotiations between the UK and Ukraine on Twitter before they got going. He wrote, the UK is a leader when it comes to expanding our capabilities on the ground and in the air. This cooperation will continue today. I will meet my friend Rishi. We will conduct substantive negotiations face-to-face and in delegations. And they most certainly looked friendly. Mr Sunak posted an image of the two leaders warmly embracing on Twitter after Mr Zelensky had landed. And uh, just before conversations got underway, the pair spoke in front of broadcast cameras as Mr Sunak welcomed Zelensky to Chequers and said... And I quote, you are actually the first foreign leader that I have had the privilege of welcoming here, as in to to Chequers, as prime minister. And there is a lot of great history here. In fact, this room we are standing in, Winston Churchill made many of his famous speeches in World War II from this room. And in the same way, today, your leadership, your country's bravery and fortitude are an inspiration to us all. 
so that was pretty pretty significant words from Sunak there. Now, a, a bit more on what the UK has said or is set to pledge to Ukraine. Last week, as we know, Britain took a pretty major step in becoming the first country to provide long-range missiles to Ukraine. So this is on top of that. The Prime Minister's office this morning said that Mr Sunak would confirm the provision of hundreds of air defence missiles and further unmanned aerial systems, including hundreds of new long-range attack drones with a range of over 200 kilometres, which they say will all be delivered over the coming months. And in response to this, the Kremlin on Monday said that the new British weapons due to be supplied to Kiev will only cause, and I quote, further further destruction. And then Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said, Britain aspires to position itself at the forefront of the countries that continue to pump weapons into Ukraine. Now, perhaps most importantly, later on, we heard that the UK and Ukraine have said that they want to create, and I quote, jet coalition in response to pleas from Zelensky to supply Ukraine with fighter jets. So in in a video which was uploaded to the YouTube channel of the Office of the President of Ukraine, a reporter asked the pair whether there were any new developments concerning jets. And Mr Zelensky said, Today we spoke about the jets, a very important topic for us because we can't control the sky. And he added, we want to create this jet coalition and I'm very positive with it. We spoke about it and I see that in the closest time you will hear some, I think, very important decisions, but we still have to work a little bit more on it. And then Mr Sunak, also responding to that question, said, we are going to be a key part of the coalition of countries that provides that support to Volodymyr and Ukraine. It is not a straightforward thing, as Volodymyr and I have been discussing, to build up that fighter combat aircraft capability. And then he announced that one thing that the UK will be doing is the training of Ukrainian pilots. Mr. Sunak said, we're ready to implement those plans in relatively short order, which will mean that we're training Ukrainian citizens to become absolutely combat ready aircraft pilots. And then he said that he would be speaking to other foreign leaders this week about aircraft provision and said, I quote, we're very keen to build that coalition of countries to give Volodymyr and his people the aircraft support that they need. And then just before I came in here to, to record the podcast, Downing Street actually confirmed that there are no plans for the UK to actually send fighter jets. The British Army operates Typhoon and F-35 fighter jets, and Ukraine has, has indicated that it would prefer F-16s. And so the Prime Minister's official spokesman said, you will know that the RAF don't use those, and said, I believe they are in discussions with other countries who use jets, those jets, and we are working with those countries. Well, thank you very much, Genevieve, for that. As we said earlier, this is part, Zelensky's visit is part of a broader European tour for him. He's visited a number of other countries. Could you just talk us through uh, some of the events there? Yes. Yeah, so so just briefly, this, this visit is part of uh, uh, his latest European tour appealing for, for new arms and weaponry. He's visited Italy, France and Germany over the weekend. So on Saturday, Mr Zelensky visited the Pope and Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney. Um, he has also visited Germany, which announced on Saturday that it is preparing a new weapons package for Ukraine worth... 2.7 billion euros, which is reportedly the largest from the country since Russia invaded last year, which will include 30 additional Leopard 1 tanks, air defence systems and surveillance drones. And I think Dom will be providing more detail on that shortly. And then in his latest foreign visit before he came to the UK, Mr Zelensky flew to Paris late on Sunday and joined uh, President Emmanuel Macron for a dinner at the Elysee Palace in Paris. And France announced that it is to send tens more light tanks and armoured vehicles to Ukraine and will train soldiers to use them. Um, And in a joint statement, um, both President Zelensky and Emmanuel Macron said, in the coming weeks, France will train and equip several battalions with tens of armoured vehicles and light tanks, including AMX-10RC. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Genevieve. Look forward to hearing you again this week. Dom, we cut you off a little bit, bit, probably too soon earlier, to talk uh, about uh, the Turkish elections and then to get the download on Zelensky's visit to the UK. But as you said, I mean, we didn't even get get through half of the updates and notes from um, activity over the weekend. So do you you want to carry on where you left off? Uh, Well, sort of. Let me just go on the back of what Genevieve was just saying there about the the meeting today with Zelensky and and Sunak. This... uh, the flying training system and these drones. So I, I rang the MOD here and on the flying training system, what they said is this is 
they're going to be taking ab initio pilots, i.e. people who have never never flown before, so straight out of the box, civilians just joined up, I, I imagine, and they will, they will slot into Britain's existing military flying training system, about 20 in the first batch, I'm told. So they wouldn't, MOD wouldn't say where, when or how, but, you know, basically, if you want to join the, the RAF or the Royal Navy as a fast jet pilot today in Britain, you go to... RF Cranwell and then RF Barkston Heath, which is just down the road. That's in Lincolnshire, and you start you start flying planes, and that's where you, that's where you do it. That's where you do your basic uh, your basic flying training bit, and you then go on and move elsewhere to convert. In in our system, you go to Anglesey and RF Valley to get onto fast jets and and what have you. So I think what's happening here is that we're going to train these people on um, on just sort of basic flying systems using I think it's the Grob or the Grub Grob I think is the name of the aircraft that they fly on and then they will go and train elsewhere and the, the MOD person I was speaking to said clearly you know, their aspiration is for F-16 we don't fly that we can do a certain amount of synthetic training i.e. simulation and very clever wizardry in that department but we don't actually have the jets so they won't when they fly the the actual aircraft that'll be somewhere else but they were they were kind of talking talking about the f-16 well they named it so i think there's some announcements coming on on that one but that's that's quite good that training is going to happen soon and on on these drones that the idea that these are long range sort of couple hundred k's drones i said well that implies that it's satellite controlled it's not these aren't line of sight these aren't sort of rf these aren't sort of localized drones these are going to be big reaper type drones that are controlled from a place could be well well away i mean we fly our drones from rf waddington again in in lincolnshire in these in the special cubes there used to fly them from creech in the u.s air force base in nevada but we move them all, all hours now to waddington but they, they're controlled via satellite so you can be anywhere anywhere in the world as long as you've got um, as long as you you know vodafone give you good connectivity which isn't always it's not vodafone i'm you know, making that bit up but these drones, they are long range, and um, so it implies there's something much bigger than just the handheld stuff that we've been seeing. They, they won't be Reaper. We're not, they're not being gifted Reaper. I'm told these are a new development, kind of basically bought off the shelf um, with a little bit of MOTS modified off the shelf or military off the shelf. It's occasionally called Best Spoke for Ukraine. And the, uh, the spokesperson I, I spoke to said that they would be they are being procured partly because they are much cheaper than conventional long-range munitions, i.e. implying they are munitions, not just used for camera and other electronic wizardry to um, to do surveillance. So these seem to be long-range, over-the-horizon attack drones, I suppose, is what there's the, the phraseology coming into use. So that's that on... Um, on President Zelensky's visit to the Prime Minister here. We can just go back to the back to the news very quickly. I'm just going to whiz through a few other bits and pieces. So over the weekend, we saw a site in the Ukrainian city of Kometsky, which is about 200 kilometres southwest of Kiev, halfway from Kiev to Lviv. So on Saturday, there was a massive, well, there were two massive explosions in this city. We're not sure if it's fuel, ammunition, what was stored there. Don't know what it was. We don't know if it was two strikes or one strike and a secondary blast. That area is known to be an old ammunition site, so Russia would have known the location was there. Now, whether that means that Ukraine would still be using it today to store valuable stuff, we, we don't know. But uh, you can see it online. There's two absolutely massive blasts there. Now, separately to that, over the weekend, there were blasts in Luhansk. So this is the capital of, of Luhansk Oblast. This is in the far east of Ukraine, about 80 k's due east from Bakhmut. It's just inside the Russian border, 20 k's inside the Russian border. There were reports that this blast was a couple of Storm Shadow cruise missiles. We talked about those last week, backed up by US decoy missiles used to clear away Russian air defensive fire. So these American decoy missiles called MALD, the miniature air launch decoys, these don't, they don't have warheads. They just have very sophisticated electronic gizmos to confuse air defense systems. Uh, about eight foot long, but less than 50 kilograms. So each aircraft that they're launched from can carry lots of these, basically as many stores pylons as there are on the jet. That's how many of these mouths that you can um, that you can carry. They will create a swarm. They can loiter, so they can really confuse an air defence network. And um, and that, that the suggestion is that they were used, allowing Storm Shadow to get through to hit this whatever it was in Luhansk. We don't know what the the target was, but something went very big bang. Now, hold that thought for a moment, please. Today's UK Defence Intelligence update says that several drones hit Russia's Seshna airbase on May the 3rd. This is about 150 kilometres north of Ukraine in Bryansk Oblast. The airbase is a hub for Russia's um, big heavy transport, military transport, aviation, and has played a major role 
MOD here says it's played a major role in enabling Russia's invasion of Ukraine. OK, so something something hits well behind the lines in Russia on May the 3rd. Now, hold that thought too, please. Over the weekend, near the city of Klinsky, which is in Bryansk Oblast, that's the bit of Russia that immediately borders Ukraine and Belarus. So we're about 50 k's north of the border with Ukraine here, 200-ish k's north, northeast of Kiev, and quite close to that Sesia airbase, about 100 k's south of the Sesia airbase, but all in the same area. An Su-35 fighter, an Su-34 fighter bomber, and two MI-8 helicopters were reported to have been shot down. It's the the worst day for Russian military aviation since the first week of the war, and there is reporting that the MI-8s, the two helicopters, big transport helicopters, were the electronic warfare versions that they would be using to use EW, electronic warfare, to confuse systems, and which could be air defences or it could be anything else, but they are pretty sophisticated. But anyway, four aircraft were shot down. Now, Russian authorities said the helicopters crashed due to an engine fire. I mean, I think it's quite clear there was an engine fire, but... There's plenty of video out there. You'll see it on social media. I think we might be carrying it as well. That shows one aircraft, one of the helicopters, being hit by a missile, very obviously hit by a missile before it crashes. Now, it comes down in a ball of flame. The tail comes off and it plummets into the ground. Now, I mean, that's, you know, so it does fall in a, in a ball of flame. But, you know, once the tail comes off, it's uh, that's it for a helicopter, basically. The tail rotor, just a a bit of a helicopter geekery here. The tail rotor is only there to counter Newton's third law of motion. You know, the old, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that all the tail rotor does is it stops the body of the helicopter spinning round in the opposite direction to the rotor head and trying to build up to the same speed as, as the rotors. So, you know, if you didn't have a tail rotor, then the, you can't use a helicopter because the thing will just go spinning in the opposite direction. That's why you see some aircraft that have two contra-rotating rotors like the chinook for example and others so basically all the crew would be killed if it's spinning around like that but you know they don't have time to be killed by that because the thing is is heading straight down very quickly that's what happened in this case some russian channels claimed that it wasn't friendly fire they said that ukrainian forces had ambushed the aircraft with missiles launched from the chernihiv region of ukraine but that would have been a hell of an ambush i mean this is you know 80 odd k's away to see the aircraft to coordinate all four on the same day that seems a bit a bit beyond i think a bit fanciful for me or they've suggested that there could be ukrainian infiltrators in the area of russia using man pads the man portable air defense shoulder launched anti-aircraft missiles again possibly but i just yeah put those with the two things that i've asked you to stick in your heads storm shadow and these long range long range drone strikes on this on this air base and uh then Greg Bagwell, who's a former air marshal in the, in the Royal Air Force, he was, he was on, on Twitter. He said it's too early to confirm, but the introduction of longer range missiles like Storm Shadow will have Russian air defences on edge and maybe a little trigger happy. The very threat of deeper strikes and more capable air power can have a significant impact. I think that's probably closest to where I'd, I'd put my money at the moment, that I think this was a complete mistake by Russian air defences. They are on edge they're a year into this now how well trained are they storm shadow was reported last week then something went bang in luhansk the weekend you've seen these strikes in setcher a month ago or sorry two weeks ago so i just wonder if if they were just misidentified their target and um and shot them shot their own aircraft down i do have a little bit more information on the uh, on the the gift the military aid that uh, germany has gifted but um i'll just come back to you david because i know we're, we're getting a bit short for time no, absolutely. Thank you, Dom. I, I guess my my sort of overarching question to you would be, I mean, you've just talked us through very, very, very eloquently a whole host of updates from Russian Air Force taking massive losses to uh, Ukraine pushing on, Ukrainian armed forces pushing on in Bakhmut, pressure on the Russian flanks around that city. If you were to zoom out and just give us a, a sense of your, your thoughts on the last few days and what we've seen, given it's become incredibly hot on the lines of contact and elsewhere, as you've just described, how would you sort of sum up what you think we're, we're seeing right now? Well, I suppose what we're seeing is the start of the fighting season again. I mean, the ground is drying out. That has an effect on vehicles and, and personnel. Just everything gets gets ready for the fight again. And I think you can um, put that together with the pressure around Bakhmut that we've been talking about for months. The pressure from both sides. You know, as we've said, there's 
I mean, it's almost tectonic. You know, something suddenly shatters or there's the ability, the potential for something to suddenly shatter. I mean, we've not seen a great reversal here from Russia. They've they've they seem to have gone back some kilometers. You know, that's not massive in a 1300 kilometer front line. That's not enormous in the grand scheme of things. So we've got to put these things in perspective. But I think it's I think it's a, a number of different things happening. The pressure that's coming to bear, the weapons that are flowing in the ground and the environment just being more conducive to humans fighting each other. But yes, I think all those things together, I don't think this is the start. As I said last week, I don't think this is the start of the counteroffensive, although I've argued that conceptually, I think that's been going on for months already, playing with Russians' minds, shaping the battlefield, bringing the kit in, training your people, and that's, that's all part of it. But I don't think this is um, this is the great launch I think this is impact mood. I think this is local conditions that have lent themselves to local counteroffensives and elsewhere. I think it's those other, all those other, all those other factors coming into play, just allowing allowing the the seesaw to tip one way or the other. There will be battlefield reversals for Ukraine anyway, but I, I don't think this is this is the final launch. Just a, a culmination of a number of different factors at play. Thank you, Dom. And for the remainder of this episode, we hear all about Francis Dernay's experience at Eurovision. On Saturday, Francis travelled to Liverpool for the world's biggest music competition, interviewing organisers, volunteers and presenters about the significance of Eurovision being dedicated to Ukraine. Well, Mum, I made it. I'm behind the scenes at Eurovision with my press pass. The world's media is here and the tension is palpable. I'm hearing a lot of excitement about Ukraine for obvious reasons. Eurovision, an annual spectacle where countries unleash their musical warriors for an epic battle of catchy tunes, over-the-top performances and questionable fashion choices. It's a surreal clash of cultures, from singing Vikings to sparkling unicorns. The Eurovision stage transforms into a wild carnival of melodious madness, leaving viewers both entertained and bewildered. Imagine Dante's Inferno as a musical. This year, I crashed the party, watching the rehearsal and the grand final from backstage. While live tweeting it for The Telegraph, something I'll never live down for those who saw it, I was also there for a serious purpose, to interview Ukrainian attendees and those involved in organising the contest. Ukraine won last year, but because of the war, it was decided that the country which came second, the UK, would host it instead on their behalf, in a city famous for its musical history, Liverpool, home of the Beatles, Billy Fury and many others. To understand how the organisers approached this unique contest, I spoke first to the head of the Ukrainian delegation in the final hours before the final. I'm Oksana Skibinska. I'm head of delegation of Ukraine at Eurovision, and I'm also project lead at Eurovision 2023. What is your role here at Eurovision as part of the Ukrainian delegation? I work in two areas. My area number one is working on the Ukrainian integration in the show part. So show part is not the contest one, but uh, interval acts, opening acts, things that are about this Eurovision in the show that is not part of the competition, so to say. So we have started um, back in October, I would say, cooperating with the BBC as the host broadcaster of this year's Eurovision Song Contest to integrate Ukrainian culture in this year's Eurovision because it is very special. We have been cooperating together, giving advice, recommendations, so that we make sure that it's really on behalf of Ukraine, as it has been declared. And my second role, I would say, is the head of delegation. So I work with the representative of Ukraine at Eurovision Song Contest. So this year is Tvorchi with the Heart of Steel. So I was uh, part of organizing the national selection to select this entry. And now we we are here to represent with this song Ukraine as a competitor. Can you tell me a little bit about this song? Because it has a lot of symbolic meaning, doesn't it? Indeed. Um, the symbol of heart has been a symbol of this year's Eurovision in Ukraine, I would say. It's that it, it, it happened so by accident, by chance, but um, it has become symbolic. Um, it's been a um, 
part of our scenery, uh, part of the decoration of the stage at National Selection that was held in, at Metro Station, so underground. There was um, a big heart on stage symbolizing the beating heart of Ukraine that beats despite everything, even underground. But uh, the heart of Ukraine is beating strongly. And um, it so happened that the jury and the public of Ukraine decided that it will be the heart of steel again that will represent Ukraine with a message of um, strength, with a message of power, with this message of resilience. Um, despite everything, despite all the circumstances, we are strong. Uh, we are brave. Uh, we, we are here to, to be brave. I really hope that uh, the Ukrainian public uh, will, uh, will be proud, will enjoy, and I hear a lot of positive feedback after the first two shows, and also from Ukrainians that are here in Liverpool. Everybody really appreciates uh, what Liverpool has delivered, because from day one, Liverpool as a whole city declared that they will make sure that it will be with Ukrainian heart and spirit, and this can be felt everywhere around the city. I've been here for three times. This is my third time in the UK and every time I feel this hospitality uh, of people and that really want to make it uh, Ukrainian in character. So we can see all these yellow and blue colors around the city. So many artists perform in different locations. So many cultural installations, exhibitions, performances are happening around the city, which makes me really happy that uh, this particular city, Liverpool, has become the whole city of this very unique Eurovision Song Contest. Next, I dashed to the arena during the final rehearsal to catch up with Maria Romanenko, who appeared on the podcast several months ago to discuss the experience of Ukrainian refugees settling in Britain. She'd been in Liverpool for some time, offering free tours of the city for the 3,000 refugee ticket holders coming for Eurovision. So you've been in Liverpool for the last few days. How's it been? I mean, it's been absolutely insane, to be honest. And the main reason is that I've been here in three different capacities. So the first one, I think the most important one for me was the volunteering. And that's the walking tours that I've been doing of Liverpool. So initially I planned to do three of those, but I ended up doing four because Jamala's team, the 2016 uh, Eurovision winner, they reached out to me asking if I could put an extra date for them because they couldn't make any other dates. So I ended up doing four of those and that just been completely exhausting. But we also had lots and lots of media attentions. I had to go to give lots of interviews about that. I've also been trying to do, see the shows as well. Obviously now we're speaking as the, the final rehearsal for the grand final is happening so that's really, really exciting. And um, people could probably hear it in the background. Yeah. And somehow also trying to do my journalistic work. I'm not really good at it because I'm just very, very late with all my assignments. But I mean, this kind of event is probably once in a lifetime, definitely, as it happens. You know, when two countries host it together, that's probably never going to happen again. So it's so amazing to have this held on behalf of Ukraine, but also in Liverpool, which is very close to where I am in Manchester. <laughs> So how have Liverpool welcomed Ukraine? Oh, it's been absolutely amazing. All the symbols and all the shows and all everything that they've put out, the whole supplementary program has been just unprecedented. There's never in the history of Eurovision that they had such a vast uh, supplementary program. So, you know, it's, it's held on behalf of Ukraine, so they could have just gone, well, we'll put some flags there and we'll say that it's on behalf of Ukraine, we'll just end it there. But they're absolutely gone above and beyond. You know, they put a whole program of uh, supplementary activities such as theatre shows, art exhibitions, photo exhibitions. There's a Discovery Ukraine section in the Euro Village where you can try Ukrainian food from uh, Yevhen Kopotenko, who's the most uh, well-known Ukrainian chef. There's also, you can buy uh, Ukrainian clothes, Ukrainian souvenirs there, Ukrainian books, and also across different restaurants and bars, you can try Ukrainian dessert called Sirniki and also a Ukrainian kompot spritz, which is an alcoholic drink. Both of the Sirniki and kompot have been designed, the recipe was designed by Ola Hercules, who is this uh, wonderful, wonderful Ukrainian-born chef who lives in London. 
So they're absolutely gone, and above, gone above and beyond. You know, they paint in this, their super lamb banana, and that's one of the biggest, biggest prides, at least since the time that they tried to sell, to sell it to Manchester and decided it was a bad idea. They painted that in yellow and blue, and there's yellow and blue colors everywhere. You know, people realize that it's held on behalf of Ukraine. That's been repeated during the shows as well. There's Ukrainian tribute uh, acts, so there's Ukrainian acts, there's... I mean, I'm just really, really impressed. I, I don't know, sometimes it like moves you to tears because there's some elements that are more somber, such as the sandbags around the Lord Nelson Monument in exchange flags. And there's also, you know, during the first semifinal, they had Rebecca Ferguson, who is from Liverpool, sing with Alyosha, Ukrainian singer. And they had like the backdrop of kind of text messages that Ukrainians are sending, like, you know, I'm in a bomb shelter, I'm safe, or I'm on my way to Poland. And that was very, very touching to see. So, you know, there's more somber elements of that. And I think some of those things can make you quite happy because you get to try Ukrainian food. And that's really, really hard in the UK, unless you're in London, where you have a couple of Ukrainian restaurants. But there's also this like more sad elements that allow you to reflect on what's happening. And I think in my experience, hanging out with Ukrainians over the past week, that can really bring you to tears. But I think they're still very appreciative of these tributes and these reminders to the rest of the world outside of Ukraine about what's happening. And the only reason that the contest is held in Liverpool is because it's unsafe to be held in Ukraine. And what do you think the significance of Eurovision culturally is for Ukraine at this moment? Obviously, they won last year and that was seen as as very significant. Just wonder a year on how you'd reflect on that experience. First of all, Eurovision is very, very big in Ukraine ever since 2003 when we started participating. It's been massive. I remember when it was 2003, I was a 11-year-old and I remember when I had Alexander Panamarov with his Hasta la Vista baby son and everybody was making a big deal about it that Eurovision has come to Ukraine. You know, I was a kind of like a child. I didn't really understand why it was so important and then next year, Ruslana won and that was a massive moment for Ukraine and then since then, we had what wild dancers. Am I right? That's wild dancers. Yeah. What a tune! <laughs> yeah, such a great song. And you know, since then, we obviously had Jamala win as well and Kalish Orchestra. And just something that allows people to cheer for Ukraine. I don't think it's so much about music for Ukrainians, it's about cheering for Ukraine because most people um, in Ukraine are very, very patriotic, as the world has now found out. So it's just a chance to cheer, to cheer for our country. And it's very, very important during war times because, you know, there will be some people saying, oh, why is Ukraine taking part in competitions? Why is it playing football at the time of the war? But they don't realize that this is something that allows you to keep the the level of normalcy. And that's something that, you know, if you don't have that, you can just go crazy because, especially for those who are staying in Ukraine, you know, if you live under constant air raid sirens and explosions and things like that, you just you just need to need to make sure that life kind of goes on as, as hard as it can be. So it's very important to have to have culture going, to have music going, sports going, humor going. There's lots of memes that have come out, as I'm sure you're aware, in the last year that are connected to the war. So it's great to have to have this. We just watched Torchy perform in the final rehearsal. I really hope they do well tonight. I think they've got a great song and I'm really, really proud of them as well. Maria had been the guest of Tim at the contest, a Liverpool local who himself volunteers to help Ukrainian refugees arriving in Poland. He was kind enough to squeeze me into his box to watch the rehearsal so I could talk to some of the Ukrainian and Polish volunteers he brought to Liverpool for Eurovision. I started by asking him for some background about his work and the experiences of those helping refugees travelling across the border of Ukraine into Poland. My name's Tim Johnson. I'm an IT consultant from Liverpool, 37 years old. Basically an independent aid worker working with charities out in the cities of Gliwice and Katowice in Poland. Wonderful. And can you just talk to me about the experience of the volunteers that have worked on those projects? Yeah, so to give you a bit of background to that, basically my partner is Polish, uh, my fiance Kasia. She and I were over visiting her mom in Gliwice at the start of the war, when the war started. We basically, I thought that they set up an arena very similar to this, where I thought I would take £100 worth of aid from a supermarket, take it there. I thought, that's me done. I'll give it to them, walk away. When I got there with this aid, I couldn't walk away. You know, there was a queue of several thousand people. 
uh, in a variety of different states, clothes off the back who've been injured, you know, psychological trauma, all kinds of horrible things happened. And I just couldn't walk away from it. So that led to quite a long period of volunteering, which is still going on. So, I mean, I, I make a bit of a, a joke about it and I say, help me annoy Polish supermarkets because um, it's kind of weird weird way of phrasing it but um polish supermarkets for example in in Glavita said nobody shops in this city like tim because i cleared them out of pasta pasta sauce several nights you know it's a bit like uh, et with one of their delivery services a number of bikes they had to send on one order i mean that's a lighter side to to a very serious point um that you know we we had serious eight work to do getting that aid to people and the shelves were getting cleared constantly so i was constantly even when i wasn't in poland back in the uk i was getting messages and pictures going we need this this and this so i was then taking the cash i'd raised in the uk converting it instantly to uh, grocery deliveries in in poland just talk to me a little bit more about about what you saw and what shocked you so much i think there were there were kind of two moments that really stuck with me well maybe three actually it's two that stuck with me the most initially the first was a young boy maybe about three years old at, i'm guessing a bit he would not look up from the floor. He was clearly shell-shocked. And the only way I can describe it to somebody who's not seen it, it's a bit like Saving Private Ryan when you see the soldier who's, um, you know, who's shaking. Um, you know, it's that kind of scene that you see. Yeah, he wouldn't look up from the floor. I gave him some chocolate um, and he said thank you but didn't look up the whole time. Um, and, you know, I remember that uh, one of the people who's here tonight at the arena, she came over to me and she said, I saw, I saw because she saw I was upset when he left, because it, 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 it can't help but get to you. And we had a kind of a front room in the arena and then a back room where all, only volunteers went, so we kind of could go in that back room and try and keep each other going. You know, you, you kept the kind of uh, composure, if you like, as best you could in the front room where refugees were arriving. So you and your volunteers that you've been working with have been doing this for many, many months now, and then you heard that, Eurovision was coming to your home city that must have been quite a moment uh, yes it was very much it was quite a moment so the um it was October last year and the um uh, the, obviously they had the announcement of the host city so I immediately phoned Mike Cox the manager of the Hanover Hotel in Liverpool a good friend of mine and I said Mike have you got any hotel rooms free he said absolutely me and my company 100% behind you we've got this for you you know basically whatever you need we will do and how many for how many volunteers well, obviously, we didn't know quite how many at the time because so we set up to 12, a group of 12. Maybe that was too ambitious at the time because we, you know, it turns out each visa cost us about 500 euros. So uh, I had to fund that personally. There was no support from government or obviously we didn't ever take away from charity for, to do this. This was a bit of a side project, but obviously a very significant side project and very kind of symbolic to have the actual real aid workers here present in Liverpool. And... Then you decided that you wanted to bring them over to Liverpool and actually bring them to the contest. And so how did that come about? <laughs> well, obviously, at that point, you know, you, you approached government ministers. We, we emailed uh, five MPs, two House of Lords on the Ukrainian Select Committee. No replies from anyone, unfortunately, asking, could I get tickets? If I got tickets, could they provide visa waivers or were there any kind of special event visas? Obviously, Homes for Ukraine is great as a scheme. Families for Ukraine, again, another great scheme. But there's a gap for a major event like this that obviously is Ukraine's year that you would hope that there was something like the World Cup where there would be a special event visa category fortunately there wasn't the answers I had were stock answers from the home office kind of almost go away <laughs> here's your here's your stock answer look at the website so at that point I you know I also emailed the council I emailed the agents of the big stars around Eurovision asking can you help me with tickets this is what I want to do again you get no replies so in the end, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway, uh, as hard as it might be. And as expensive as it might be, surely. Extremely expensive. The whole visit's cost about 20000 but, um, you know. Out of your own money? Yes, correct. I realised that I'm very fortunate in life. Um, I'm an IT consultant. I have my own business. And I feel a, a massive degree of responsibility socially to these people because I volunteered alongside them myself, you know, I have seen the sheer impact upon them, as you, as you have tonight. Um, you know, well, there's no words to describe what they've gone through. You know, they're like family to me. And, you know, there was no way on this earth I was going to let Ukraine's year pass by without getting them here. By, you know, use the phrase, by hell or high water, we were going to do it. It's not been easy at all. And for those who've 
are interested in your work and have heard this, how can they find you and support you? So the best charity to support for this is the charity I work with. It's called GT, GTW Glavica, which is G-L-I-W-I-C-E. Obviously, W in Polish is pronounced V, so Glavica. Those guys, they run a variety of support projects for Ukrainians in that city. Obviously, Poland has a variety. Every city in Poland has different aid projects that support different needs. GTVR or GTW to us um, support kind of the the basic needs of Ukrainians arriving in that city. Every city in Poland has taken a massive influx and every city has its own charitable organizations. Um, obviously, the Polish government, um, you know, particularly the Foreign Office of Poland, I would massively praise those guys. Um, they are fantastically responsive, particularly the, the Foreign Secretary of Poland, Arkady Szygotsky. He's very a very big supporter of Ukrainians in Poland. Tim made reference there to his friend Mike, the hotelier in the city housing the volunteers. I also chatted to him about what it's been like having them stay. Michael Cox, I'm from Liverpool. I work at the Hanover Hotel and McCartney's Bar on Hanover Street in the Liverpool City Centre. You know why it's been an experience, it really has, it's been fantastic. So hearing some of the stories that they told has been heartbreaking, but as well it's been great to see smiles on their faces as well, so especially with what they've gone through. It's unimaginable for us right now and we're so lucky that we can do this for them, that we can help them out and help promote what, what they're doing. And how has Liverpool welcomed the Eurovision Song Contest and, of course, hosting it on behalf of Ukraine? It's been entertaining. <laughs> it's been a logistical nightmare, but really have enjoyed it. It's such a big event. We genuinely didn't realise it was going to be this big an event, but it, it's been great to see all the different faces, all the different people coming over, not just Ukraine, but all the people across Europe and even Australia. With the help of a translator, also one of the volunteers, I was able to speak to some of these Polish and Ukrainian men and women who'd given so much of their time to help refugees. For many of them, it was the first time they'd stopped working since the invasion in February last year. My name is Yola. Yola, very nice to meet you. And what work have you done for and in Ukraine? So Yola helped in Glivice, in Arena, uh, the, the refugees who came at the beginning of the war, so children and adults. Uh, she was organizing the, uh, the food for them and the other products. Uh, so she was organizing the packages for them and make sure uh, all people who, who needed it got it. And what's it been like coming to Eurovision? For me, this is very, very um, surprise. You know, yeah, I never think about I stay here, I have this good time. For me, for every these people would stay and me together. I don't want to talk because I'm very, very happy. For me, it's, like it's pleasure, you know. I think for everyone it's amazing and it's something they could never expect to happen. Even though, obviously, they are still, most of them, their mind is there in Ukraine and they think about the war, about their friends, about their families there. It's an absolutely beautiful moment to see how the United Kingdom supports them, how generous a team was, and they could hopefully forget for a moment about the traumatic experience and daily life they, they have uh, in Ukraine and their families there. Another of the Polish volunteers was Rafał Tomola, who told me about his work and also helpfully served as a translator for two of the Ukrainian volunteers. We have the international hoop aid in Warsaw and we take care of about 5,000 children, 200 hospitals and we support the soldiers on the front line and also the field hospital. Yeah? Mikoa, his father and two brothers are fighting. Yesterday his brother was the wounded. So uh, our heart, you know, the, the share to be here and to be over there. Uh, Andrew, in the three days, will be support his neighbors, cousins and brothers on the front line. Uh, we will be organized another transport of the humanitarian aid yeah, uh, on Ukraine. So now we are also the working. We are not only here. We are laughing because they 
after nine months, Nikola told me that uh, he was that slept more than four hours, yeah, without any signal, without any rocket alarms, yeah. So there was the strange for us. And yesterday he was smiling first time. Science September last year. I asked Raffle to ask the two Ukrainian volunteers to describe their feelings. Of course, they would like that Eurovision should be in the Odessa. Yeah? And I know that they can't make it in Ukraine. Yeah. So from the one point of view, it's they're very, very appreciate the Liverpool the partnership with the Odessa town. Yeah. The most really beautiful town, yeah, and so they have the cars are still broken, yeah, to be over there and to be here. Mi się podoba po prostu uśmiechnięte ludzi, dzieci, które nie się nie obracają w różne strony, że what is the most amazing that here is life? The children are smiling, the people are smiling, the on the street, yeah, we feel the support, the another people. And they can live without the alarm attacks. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is the most important. And the first was a little bit strange for them. Yeah. Czyli przelata lot na letnisku, to u nas, u nas, wszystki padałem się, bałem się, że zacznie atak. When we see today the the airplanes, yeah, or even the seagulls, yeah, everybody were down because they're thinking the airplane or the drones, yeah. So this is the difference. So the tension and the pressure after the three, four days was a little bit down, yeah? They start smile, and they, they were dancing. So you see the, how important it is for them. I then asked Andrew for his reflections. They feel like a home, yeah? Because we discussed this evening. We were in the cavern, and we feel so good, yeah? That this is so amazing for us, yeah? Very nice people, very beautiful people. I then turned to Raffle for his thoughts on the fast-evolving military situation. And will be the victory, yeah. So the moral is incredible, yeah. I can tell you the story because two weeks ago I met in the forest on the road to the front line two soldiers, yeah, wounded soldiers. I stopped. Bakhmut or similar, yeah, in the. In the very close, yeah, and they escape from the hospital just to be with the brother in arms. Mm. If you want, you can connect now directly with the guys from the back. Room. Yeah, that would be fantastic. We spend a few minutes trying to connect to soldiers on the front line. Mm. So sometimes you see this is impossible to, to yes. connect, but yeah, yes. this morning they call to, to Andre, the friends, they ask in, the war on the front style. line, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what did they say? Yeah, and uh, you know, this is the guys they cannot uh, take a shower for the one month, yeah. So they use the wet wipes, simply things, but very important, yeah. After watching the final rehearsal in the arena, I dashed backstage to the press area to watch the final. As you can hear, it was quite an experience. We're eight songs down, and the jacket is off, things are heating up in here. Much as it pains me to say it, there's a lot of love in the press room for France. Also, Poland did a lot better than in the dress rehearsal that I watched earlier. If that translated at home, then it could be a very interesting night indeed. After watching the 26 acts, there was an anxious wait as the judges gave their scores and the all-important votes from the public filtered through. In the end, it was Sweden who triumphed, which means they'll be hosting it 50 years on from ABBA winning Eurovision with Waterloo in 1974. Ukraine came sixth and, cruelly, the UK second to last. After the show, I caught up with Tamor Moroshnashenko, who David spoke to for the podcast before the 2022 Song Contest. That year, Tamor provided the official Ukrainian commentary from a bunker in Kyiv. This year, he co-hosted the opening ceremony of the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool and acted as a Eurovision correspondent, appearing during the live shows, in addition to his usual role as commentator for the Ukrainian broadcaster. 
Timor, thank you so much for your time. Extraordinary event last night. We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, what have you been up to since you last spoke to David many months ago now? Yeah, one year. <laughs> Already one year. A lot of things changed, of course. Now, for example, we have an opportunity to live in Kiev more or less uh, in the peaceful conditions, thanks to all our partners from the US, EU and UK for the strong air defense system. Because even during these two weeks while I'm here, my family is in cave. And of course, I'm receiving uh, all the time messages from them. So explosions, explosions, but that is explosions from the air defense system. Life is going on. We have to live, we have to create, to celebrate, uh, to keep going, to hold on and uh, uh, that's why I think we are here, have a chance to be a part of this unique, unique event which we had yesterday. As you say, it was unique. It is the morning after the night before. What are your reflections on it? Now I understand that it was uh, the main, the most important Eurovision in its history. Because we all know that it was created 67 years ago just to unite countries on the continent in recovery around peace and uh, this time yes of course we are not a continent on recovery but now we have uh, the war which is similar in its scales to the second world war first world war but concentrated just in one country you know what i understood during this time here we really stay together we really united then more than ever before and uh, it's not a just a war it's a thoughts, feelings of all the people whom I met here during this time. It must have been very difficult to, to leave Ukraine. How did it feel to, to come here? And Because I, I know it's not just last night, it's the many weeks of preparation beforehand. Once again, it's about life. The war is about life. And uh, our soldiers fighting not only for our lives, but for the peace on the continent as well. And uh, I know that I'm, I have something to do for this. Yeah, And I'm here like a cultural diplomat <laughs> from, from Ukraine. I have two tasks, I can say. One of it, uh, I like to send messages from Ukrainians to all other worlds. And another one, to send it back to Ukrainians. Because uh, a lot of people in Ukraine, um, maybe, I think, like, we have less support now than, for example, a year before. And I can say that what I saw here, that no the situation is different. We have even more support than the year before. Yes, because Ukraine didn't win, but in a sense, the whole of the competition was a, was a celebration and a commemoration of what has been happening in Ukraine. Just want to hear your reflections on that. I'm absolutely happy. I'm absolutely happy. Because, first of all, even during the rehearsals or shows, when the audience heard a word Ukraine, they started to shout out as loud as they could as they can and uh it's really priceless it's the sign of that support it's, a, it's, a, it's some some kind of recognition that i didn't know how to say and uh here in eurovision it's of course a political contest a show we can't say uh, for example that while we are celebrating music here ternopil city for example bombing right at this moment but um we can say it in, in other words, in another science, in another performances, which is more touchy, even more, they are like coming in you more than just a words or some shots from a news. And of course, there'll be many people who won't be intimate with Eurovision. I'll just say, well, isn't it just a song contest? But it's got an enormous audience, 160 million plus, they think. How important do you think this moment was for Ukraine and raising awareness of what has been happening? That was very important. I think uh, that this year we had more than 160 million, more likely 200 million. I don't know, We're still waiting for the exact numbers. But uh, I know definitely that we received much more votes than last year. And this is a sign that we have much more viewers. And, uh, of course, the involvement of people this year is much more bigger than uh, previous years. It's a, Eurovision, during its history, was a place to showcase everything. And I, really, I'm dreaming about times when, in the, maybe next or a couple of years ahead, we will get back to just a show 
with nothing. But now it's uh, more about, um, once again, this main function to unite, to bring different cultures, mixture of cultures, different uh, music, different, even different feelings and meanings of everything in one place for everyone. And what's next for you? Uh, I'm coming back to Ukraine, of course. My family is there. I have a lot of work <laughs> to do there. <laughs> yeah, so I'm coming back. It, it'll be a long trip because here it took 43 hours to come to Liverpool from <laughs> Kiev. <laughs> yeah, just one and a half year ago, it was three hours by plane. Now it's 43 hours by three different types of transport. <laughs> yeah, coming back to Ukraine and continue to do what can, what can I do? to get closer to that day we all speak, expecting. And one final question from me. Obviously, it's a very important moment in the war in many ways. We're expecting the counteroffensive. How do you feel at this moment over a year into the war? Yeah, we are expecting, 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 and we'll be expecting till that moment when our commanders will understand that it's time for this. You know, all this... Uh, kind of stuff like Eurovision or different events or even just a concert. I mean, actually, in Ukraine, every week, once or twice a week, we're doing the concerts for military in different parts of Ukraine. And uh, even this one, two hours concerts, giving them moral to, to keep going, to raise up their moral to... I don't know, you know, after all the shows, all the concerts, I'm receiving messages from the wives of the soldiers with the thank, uh, thank words. And they said, you know, for the third day, they're talking just about this concert because it's like some piece, piece of peace. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, it's just a small one concert somewhere in the trench on a ruined uh, concert hall on the front, just behind the front line. And here we have the biggest event on the continent on behalf of our country and for our country. And of course, I know definitely that mostly all, mostly every Ukrainian soldier watched the Eurovision or just know about it. And of course, they know now that they are not alone, not only Ukrainians on their back, but all the European, all the people around the world, civilized world, stand with them. So what are my final thoughts? It was a fantastic evening, but as you'll have heard, also a humbling one. Liverpool and the organisers did a genuinely fantastic job in making the event feel like a celebration of Ukraine whilst sensitive to the horrors it's experiencing. I'm very grateful for those who took the time to talk to me, often missing some of the show in the process, and to those of you who tweeted me on the night you will be very relieved to hear, no doubt, that normal service from me will resume later this week. But first, I'll need to catch up on sleep. Francis Dernley, Eurovision correspondent for Ukraine The Latest, signing off. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1.00 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.